0: to Exodus chapter 18, Exodus chapter 18, and put a marker there. Today, like last week, we're going to take some time to get to chapter 18. There's going to be a lot of review again, and I'm learning more and more. How God works in mysterious ways. I think today's message will go right along with what Brother Mike was teaching this morning and, and help uh, again and, and just trying to speak to our hearts about uh, certain matters. You know, Mike and I, I mean we meet, but we meet over at Tim's house. And it's usually uh, uh, uh. You know, those kind of things. That's how we communicate over there, you know. Um, So we're not, we're both in our own independent worlds. And it just amazes me how God puts things together. And you ought to be amazed as well, lest you be like the children of Israel and walk through and not see what God's doing. So don't turn a deaf ear you might say, I've heard this already, you went over all this, a lot of times pastors do that, but there's reasons, God sometimes has to do that. We're going to continue our journey through the wilderness with the Israelites. It has been an unintentional series of messages we could name Christianity Boot Camp Lessons in the Wilderness. Now that's not this morning's message, Andy, so we'll get to that in a moment. So far we've walked with Israel beginning at a place of no hope in the flesh. Pinned between a sea of human impossibility and an oppressive Egyptian army coming to enslave them again, and I'll say no, I think Israel probably came to the conclusion that Egypt may be coming to destroy them eternally. An army whose heart was hardened, an army who suffered plagues and bore the death of their firstborn because of them, because of them, because of God. This is very well the answer of the hardened heart. The heart of Cain to kill Abel. The hardened heart of Egypt in uncontrollable anger to kill Israel. This is a picture of God's great salvation when He leads us to a place of truth in our lives, a place where we're helpless to the power and bondage of sin, the realization that sin is coming to take us down once for all in eternity. Hell awaits. And no matter how hard we try to escape it, no matter how good of a person we are, to overcome it, we find ourselves coming to the truth whereby we cry helplessly to God for a miracle. At the cry of the Israelites, we saw the mercy of God by the pillar of the cloud turning from before them, going behind them and holding back the fast approaching enemy who without God's mercy would soon kill them or so bitterly enslave them that they'd probably rather die than to live. This gift of mercy could be defined as divine time. A unique time of clear choice to repent, to turn our back on the only life we know, a life of survival of the fittest, a life void of answers to our existence, our purpose for living, and where we will go when we die. Mercy stands as a temporal wall, temporarily holding back the judgment of sin and its just reward. It is at this time, a precious fleeting time, a time where the Holy Spirit clearly persuades us to turn our backs on our meaningless, misunderstood life, to turn to a life built on a promise of God a life of separation unto God, a life to find reason, purpose, and destiny, a life that is foreign to human sin nature, to be followed by faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, a life lived no longer by natural means and human explanation, but by supernatural means in accordance to the Word of God through the teaching, leading, and understanding given by the Spirit of God. It is a new life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Israelites, they had the example of faith by their father Abraham. Hebrews 11.8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, As in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. They had a story from the past and a promise for the future, but they also had 400 years of experience of developed doubt. However, They not only had a story from the past, but they had a miraculous visitation from God by recent experience. Ten plagues of supernatural nature and of supernatural protection, may I say. The last of which will be a feast to be forever observed and remembered by the nation of Israel, known as the Passover. This time of mercy and supernatural revelation is a time of no excuse in our lives. It is a sobering time, a supernatural time, whereby as a nation we'll be saved from Egypt and separated unto God. Now I say a nation, that you, you do need to understand that this salvation, though there's application personally, it was a salvation of a nation. It's amazing. God deals with nations. He deals with nature. He, and he deals with human beings, individuals. The Israelites, at their cry to God, saw their enemies stayed, An enemy who would dare to pursue after Israel, after experiencing God's judgment of terrible plagues. An army who would not turn back at the supernatural hindrance by a pillar of cloud of darkness. What would you think? You're stuck between a place with a cloud in front of you of darkness, of supernaturalness. After all you've experienced, they are... They were so hard-hearted, they were coming after him. I don't think they were going to let him survive. I, I think they were just so hard. May I tell you today that Egypt is the picture of Satan who is not willing that any should be saved, but that all should remain under his rule, even to the end of their final destruction. In Zechariah 10, 11, Egypt is represented by a scepter. A scepter, one of subverb, subservient rule to bondage. Also in Zechariah 10, 11, another enemy nation is noted, Assyria. Specifically, the pride of Assyria. Assyria would be characterized as the most cruel of all the enemies Israel would face. Egypt would enslave, but Assyria excelled in the cruelest torture tactics and enslaved Israel by terrorism tactics to the point of suicide over the thought of being captured by Assyria. Though being shut in by the land and sea, according to God's plan, which could not fail, there was a moving of the Spirit of God coming from the east, a Holy Ghost wind, that blew that night, which presented the clear path of salvation, the represent, representative of Christ, a miraculous dry seabed for Israel to march through. Now I'm gonna read Zechariah 10:11, And Andy, this is gonna be some fodder for you when we talk a, about uh, Israel and, and their final time. It says, and he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. Now this, though this language here speaks about a time yet in the future of the millennial reign of Christ on earth, it is ref- reflective representation of God's deliverance through the Red Sea and reflective of the crossing of the Jordan into the Promised Land. The point I want to make here is the specific wording. Wording that the sea was passed with affliction. Jesus was afflicted. He suffered and he died. He bore our sins. But it also says he shall smite the waves of the sea. That sea split open made a wide-open path. He overcame death, hell, and the grave by the power of His resurrection. That, as we might say, at His expense, and at His expense alone, we pass through the sea on dry ground by His power and His power alone. But as we move through this reflection, I want to take just a little rabbit trail. Maybe this is helpful for Andy, as he's been doing some study. To give you the ultimate meaning of Zechariah 10, 11, and this comes in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. This is prophecy. And a king shall reign and prosper, and he shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's all in caps. Verse 7 says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they, speaking of Israel, Shall no more say the Lord liveth which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries, whither I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. God's not done with Israel. They're coming back. They'll dwell in this land. It'll be a special time. The millennial reign of Christ. His people Israel will turn back to Him to the point of what they said all along will have little meaning to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Seems impossible now, doesn't it? The phrase, the Lord our righteousness. That's where righteousness is. In Jesus Christ. But getting back on track. God delivered the nation of Israel by the Red Sea. But our lesson in the wilderness is that we must make personal application. Personal application. We will not be saved by being a part of a nation, a church, or whatever you want to say. We will be saved by personal faith. Hebrews demonstrates true personal faith in Christ and references the lack of personal faith to be to say found in the Hebrews in the wilderness exactly what you were saying yet not all <laughs> that's a general statement there were some that got it the point is that it's up to each individual to trust Christ by faith to set aside your works And to seat your faith in Christ, the only one responsible to save you, to sanctify you, to keep you. This is the place of rest for the believer. And we are commanded to stop from our works and enter into his rest. If I could add to what Brother Mike was saying. And what the first message that I started out with, that God put in my heart, is, and if you think about it, and and what Brother Mike was saying, God's been speaking to me about this, you know, you you look at salvation in the Bible, (laughs) and there is no A, B, C, one, two, three, you come to Christ, and Christ gives you more questions than answers. Because what's important is that you know it. You know it for yourself. See, because once you come to the conclusion, once you know through the Word of God and once you search for it and listen to God about it and you find it and you know it, you enter into that and then you don't doubt. Your flesh will doubt. But you, but you know not to doubt. You know because you know. Because it's for you to know. It's for me to find out. You see, salvation is personal. Not The people in the wilderness didn't. Oh, weren't all saved. The nation got saved and came out. and God was doing work and he moved them through and he had a purpose and he will do that. But not all. The next week we understood that after salvation, God puts us um, into a training camp. A training camp to prove or, listen to this, disprove ourselves as believers. And to train us for spiritual battle. He demonstrated this by bringing us to difficulty, then supernatural providing. He teaches us to trust in Him, to depend on Him, and rely on God's supernatural power. Not to rely on the flesh. It is the same today. Preachers are not to depend on their ability and skill. (laughs) Matter of fact, God takes glory in choosing idiots like me. They must depend on the supernatural power of God. We must yearn for the power of God to fall. I yearn for that. I yearn for our families to see. Not a great message. But God, fall. We need to ask God. He then teaches us the principle of obedience. Do what God says, no matter what it looks like or what you think. We struggle with that, folks. Last week we looked at the first physical battle in the wilderness. I believe this physical battle very much represents the battle of our flesh against the Spirit. Indicative of Jacob and Esau, twins within the womb of Rebekah. Two nations with two different manners struggling in one body. We learn that that battle does have a physical aspect, a war of the will. But we see that though the battle is fought in the physical will, the winning of it only comes through bringing God into it by the means of prayer. We must pray, folks. Pray more. Today we get another wilderness lesson. This is a very simple lesson, not a very deep lesson. Nonetheless, a very important one. The title of the message is simply called Help. Let's pray. Father, as we get started in this message of help, I pray that we will be taught something today. Sometimes messages are just really pretty simple and practical, and this one is. Not real deep waters at all, but Father, necessary. And so, Father, I pray that we would get what we need to get out of this message, each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, turn to Exodus 18, should we have a place there, Exodus chapter 18, and I'm just going to go through the entire chapter and I'll make some stoppages along the way says in Exodus 18:1, when Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eleazar. For the God of my father said, He was mine help. And delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Was past life there. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness. Where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses... I, thy father-in-law, Jethro, am come unto thee, and thy wife, and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and did obeisance, and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they came into the tent. Now first, let me clear something up for my son-in-laws. Do not take the kissing thing literal. The rendering of the TJB Bible version, that's the Timothy James Brinker Bible version, (laughs) the meaning of kiss is handshake, pat on the back, or in an extreme sense, a man hug. But all joking aside, we begin to see the aspects of a meek man, the man Moses. Moses practiced something here that would later be written later should I say, be written in the fifth commandment of God to honor and respect your father and mother. Verse 8, And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the travail that had come upon them by the way and how the Lord delivered them. Here is another mark of meekness. And we know that Moses was considered the meekest man on the earth. Moses, you you gotta think of what everything what Moses went through. Moses deferred any credit or any reference to himself in this. He gave credit to God in all that was done. You know, for most of us, most people, they start their story with I. the story of them through the process. And they mix in a few me's and myself's. And, you know, in the flesh, I would say that Moses probably had some good reason to maybe mention some of the things he went through, but he didn't. When we do this, when we inject ourselves, we, we need to understand this. is We do this all the time. We inject ourselves. It's merely exalting ourselves, You know, except for Moses' lips that was used... He is not in any part of that statement, if you go back and read it. He's, He's nowhere in it. It's all about God, what He did for the Israelites. He's like totally out of the picture. May we take note of that. Verse 9 through 11. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom He had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now listen to this statement. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. For in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. Here is, I just stopped when I heard this statement. An interesting statement from Jethro. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now, you know, you know, I don't, that sounds like somebody who lived for God who was trying but never got there, but finally said there was. Perhaps he was unsaved, or this was a pretty unspiritual person. What did you mean? <laughs> now that you realize that he's, he's the greatest God over all these gods. Man, that sounds pretty spiritually mature. Herein with this remark, we see that Moses will listen to and receive advice from somebody much less experienced and less spiritual than he. This is another mark of meekness. Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, And Aaron came, and all the elders of Israel, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all thy people stand by thee? From morning unto even. That thou doest to the people, he says. (laughs) When we do not utilize help, the people are hurt. What Moses did was hurting the people. Moses could not see this. Sometimes we need to hear things from others so that we can see what we cannot see for ourselves. This is perhaps probably our greatest weakness. It's simply called pride. Pride was not Moses' problem, but we will see what his problem started with. Verse 15 and 16, And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God, When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Here we see a wonderful aspect of Moses. Moses just always tried to serve the people. he He was there. He just always would do whatever was needed. He would try to supply it. It's a good thing to just keep your head down and serve, but there's a weakness that you might not see a greater picture. Verse 17, And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. We see that it's not only bad for the people that we try to do everything for everybody. But it is also bad for ourselves. It's called being weary in well-doing. We must engage help in our work. And we need times of refreshment. A time, as my wife would say, if you know, if you have spoke to her, you've heard this word before. A time to regroup. <laughs> Verse 19 and 20. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward that thou mayest bring the causes unto God, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and thou shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Here Jethro says you are still going to do the same job, Moses. You're not going to shirk your responsibilities here. But you need to engage help. But not just any help. This help Will be qualified help. This is the start of pretty practical advice. There's a lot of practicality in this. Advice, even the world knows. Verse 21 Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, qualifications. Big jobs have big qualifications says, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. Here we see the practicality of organization. Verse 22, and let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring, up, bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. I'm so thankful for what I have as a church. I I believe any pastor, (laughs) from what I've seen, would covet what this church has here and support and help and trueness. But here we see the practicality of prioritization, just prioritizing things. Verse 23, if thou shalt do this thing, and listen to this, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. Here lies the caveat. And and God commands thee so. In other words, Here is my advice. But God has to put his okay on this. Is this advice from God? Or is this advice to be avoided? Sometimes it's like that. Verse 24 through 26, And Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said And Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Moses had eyes to see. He had ears to hear. He was open to advice. And he did not put God in a box in how and where this advice would come from. But the final decision is based on approval from God. It needed God's stamp. And obviously it had God's stamp on it. He said he did everything his father-in-law said. And his father-in-law said, if God was in this. So look at where this advice came from. Most of us won't even can't even hear it. Let alone listen to it. Let alone dwell on it and let it sink in and then seek God about it. We've been going through a series of movies that close to home with the men on Thursday. And I tell you, and I've watched it before, but more and more, they're looking at where did The people, where where did Israel go through the Red Sea at? The miracle of the Red Sea, you know. And there's all these opinions. They're basically classified, and these, what he calls both groups, people of faith. In other words, they're not, these aren't, uh, you know, agnostics or uh, evolutionists. They're both people of faith, is what he's describing them. But one takes... What he calls a Hebrew view, which is a miraculous view, and the other one takes an Egyptian view, which is a naturalistic view. How could that God works through nature, that there is no big supernatural things that He always just so that He had to do this through this little area here, where the wind could actually blow, it could happen and separate the water. I am up to here listening to that. He could have, but don't put God in a box. He'll do it however he wants. He can do it supernaturally. We don't realize how many times we put God in a box and how he's going to work. Religions are really famous for that. God can do what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, and is perfect every time. I have no problem believing, man, if He can make the world in six days. He can separate a humongous sea like that, but He didn't do it like that. He decided to do it overnight. He has a reason. He has a purpose. Don't struggle with it. I'll tell you what, as I think about these people of faith, I wonder if, Like Mike was saying, they came so far but haven't crossed over. What kind of God do you have? What kind of God do you have? And it says in verse 27 And Moses let his father in law depart, and he went his way into his own land. Advice comes and goes what is God advising you of at this very moment it's a special time when things are stayed back the world is pushed back and God the Holy Spirit can speak unto you and he's saying something what is he saying what advice is he giving you with the pianist coming Heads bowed and eyes closed. It's an invitation to your heart for you. Only you. Only you can deal with God. You need to search it out. You need to know. You need to know. You need to prove whether you're saved or not. Are you in? Ever wonder? God doesn't need rest. He made a day of rest. Here's what he's talking about. From the very beginning, he knew what he was doing. There's no reason we can't just fully trust him and give him everything. In a life, Have you done that? Have you put your trust in him who cannot fail? Have you departed from your works? Help is somewhat humble. (laughs) You know, I look at little children, and when they're little, they say, I do it myself. I do it myself. They don't want anybody helping them. That's a bad thing. That's a thing in the flesh. But then I see adults who sit there and flounder and make stupid mistakes, do wrong things they don't will not ask advice or help from anybody what a travesty You for your attention. I pray God spoke to your heart. Engaging help. It's just a practical lesson that God just stops here and and deals with. It's a work of pridelessness. I'm starting everything with a P, so I'd rather use a different word there. But it's a work of practicality. It's a work of provision, meeting your own needs and the needs of others. It's a work of provoking others into the work. And it's a work, finally, of proving God to seeing God work. That's what we need. We need to see God work. We need to know that's, that's God. That's God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the people of God. Thank you for the church. Thank you for how you've done everything perfectly. Help us unperfect people to learn to follow you. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are just